Good morning. I love that we as a church give time in our gatherings to read 47 consecutive verses of scripture together. It says something about what we see as most important for us, doesn't it? God's word is our authority. It guides us and leads us. And as we begin, let me pray that the Lord will use his word in that way now. Lord God, we pray for the blessing of your word in our lives. We pray the Spirit would be working in our hearts to cause us to understand and receive all that you've caused your servant Luke to write down about this amazing day of Pentecost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 1, the time in the church before the Holy Spirit came. This week we turn to Acts 2, and early on we see the Holy Spirit comes. And this day, this day of Pentecost, becomes a miraculous and momentous day in the history of the church. So getting right into it, our outline this morning is going to follow this day, the progression of the narrative of this day. We'll look at its three parts as Luke has recorded it here. First, we will see that the Holy Spirit comes in verses 1 through 13. Second, we'll see that an apostle speaks in verse 14 through 40. And third, we will notice how the church grows in verses 41 through 47. So first, in verses 1 through 13... The Holy Spirit comes. And because Carol just read that, uh, we'll go right in and I won't read it again. Ever since Jesus had promised that the Spirit would come, the apostles had been waiting. And that's something we saw last week. But now on the morning of the day of Pentecost, a day that typically celebrated both the harvest that was being gathered in And also as a remembrance when the law was given at Mount Sinai, both things symbolized in this this celebration of Passover in the Jewish calendar. Now on this day of Pentecost, the promise of the Spirit is fulfilled. Remarkable things happen. Sounds like rushing wind and flames of fire appearing over the apostles' head and those who gathered with them. And Luke says in verse 4 of chapter 2 that they, those gathered in the house when the Spirit comes, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There had never been an instance where all God's people had been filled by the Holy Spirit. Until now. In the Old Testament, only national leaders or those specifically chosen by God for specific tasks were given that privilege. But now, since Christ has come and brought in his new kingdom and his new covenant, the Spirit is resting on all of them. People outside began to notice what was going on inside. Crowds of Jews heard the noise and they came to see. And what they heard, astonished them. It astonished them. They heard people, people likely without education, 
backcountry type of people, as we would say from my country, Galileans, speaking to them in their own tongue, in their own language. Jerusalem was a very cosmopolitan place. And we read in chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, that the nationalities represented, even among the Jews, stretched across the known world at the time. They had moved to Jerusalem and they were living there from all over the world. And yet these Galileans spoke to all of them in all their native languages. Likely, if you were there, you would have been astonished too. You would have wondered what these people were wondering. What is going on? What's happening here? They don't know how low-class guys from Galilee know so many languages. Verse 8. And they have no idea what... Some watching it just wrote them off as a bunch of drunks. You may have heard the story at some point in your life of Pandora's box. In Greek mythology, a woman named Pandora was given a gift from the gods. A box that contained all the evils of the world. And she was given specific instructions not to open it. But curiosity gets the best of Pandora. And she opens it. And as the myth goes, sadly to this day... What she did could not be undone, and evil runs throughout the world. Pentecost is the opposite of Pandora's box. For one, it actually happened. The goodness of God himself was unleashed through a gift, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brought not the potential for disaster and evil and death, but the promise of life and hope and salvation. Through the work of the Spirit, God would now have a people who knew Him. Not in their minds, just knowing His law and His commandments, but but really knew Him in their hearts. People whose lives would reflect a deep, personal relationship with the living God and whose lives would, from this point on, alter the course of human history. Pentecost was the day when God living in you went from promise to reality. And so it's been ever since. The grace of God is all over verses 1 through 13. Think back to the story of Babel in Genesis 11. And those proud people who used their God-given strengths, unity and language and ingenuity and creativity impressed on them by the Creator, used those things to attempt to become like God, to reach Him. God punished them. He confused their language and He scattered them and He divided them throughout the world. But God brought all those nations with all those languages back to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. He brought them back where they could hear the one message of His mighty work through Jesus Christ. That's God's grace at work. So let's never boast except in the grace of God. We are so dependent on Him 
something as simple, you realize, as a language barrier could have been all the difference between you hearing and you not hearing the gospel message. But God, in His grace, if you're a believer today, sent in a chain from Pentecost the gospel message through language after language after language after language to you. And in your language, God spoke through His Spirit that you might hear His gospel and receive it and have life with God. That's God's grace. Once again, as He so often does, God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the strong. Of all the people God chose to begin His church, He chose Galileans. He chose the people who other people made lots of jokes about. He chose those whom others saw as stupid or poor or uncultured. And look what he did with them. He put his spirit in them and showed his power through them. In God's history of redeeming people, it's the lowly people who occupy the high position in God's mind. So think about that in your work this week. Let that be an encouragement to you. The world may not think much of your position, but that's okay. That's okay. With the same power that is at work in you, through His Spirit, believer, the apostles released the gospel on the world. With the same power alive in you, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. With that power in you, God is able to sustain you. He's able to use you to do the same miracle, to use you as an instrument for his purpose of bringing the gospel into this world. Perhaps you're here and you really honestly identify more with the skeptics in this passage. You know, the world we live in can be a harsh and a cruel place. And because of that, maybe for you, you may be skeptical of hope or life with God. Perhaps it's just easier to mock it than to believe it. The miracle of Pentecost is in this room. It is for you to witness and for you to see this morning. Spiritually dead people in this room have been brought to life. Written on every person here who has received Jesus as Lord is the testimony of God's Spirit living in them. There's love shared here. There is genuine, real joy experienced among the believers in this room. There is unity here among us that ignores barriers that the world highlights. To the glory of God. I'd invite you if you are skeptical. Set aside your skepticism for just a few minutes. So that you might hear how you can be part of that miracle. These opening verses may be the beginning days for the church. But they also give us a glimpse into where this whole story is headed. Where God's purposes are going for his people. From the very beginning, God has marked out a people who weren't just Jewish. 
but they were international, stretching nation across nation. Acts 1.8 told us last week, the gospel is meant not just for Jerusalem or Judea, but for Samaria and for the ends of the earth. The heavenly audience that we will be a part of, church, will be an audience from every kind of people and every kind of language. That's how God started it. And that's how he'll finish it. And just like at Pentecost that we see here in these beginning verses, every language will be used for the same purpose. To magnify and glorify our saving God who has brought us life through his son Jesus. So that's point number one. The Holy Spirit comes. The second section of this passage is in verses 14 through 40. An apostle speaks. An apostle speaks. If you scanned over verse 14 through 40, you'd only notice one verse in which Peter is not speaking. And that's in verse 37. The rest of the time, Peter is speaking to the crowd of Jews that had gathered. And he quickly dismisses the claim or the idea that these people were drunk. He says, that's silly, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Then he explains. Then he explains what had just happened that they had seen. In verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Pentecost had been prophesied. It had been predicted hundreds of years before through God's prophet. Verses 17 through 21 is a quotation from Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32, which Craig read to us earlier. Joel spoke of a time when the Spirit would be poured out on many people, and those who received the Spirit would prophesy. The event would also be accompanied by signs and wonders. And the purpose of the spiritual outpouring is in Acts chapter 2, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Spirit will lead to salvation. Peter quotes Joel to let everyone know that Joel 2, 28-32 had actually just happened. Right there in front of them. This answers the questions they had asked in verse 8. How is it that we're hearing? Because God, the Spirit of God, is speaking to you in your own language. That's how. And the quote from Joel also begins to answer the second question in verse 12. What does this mean? People speaking in different languages, witnessing to the mighty works of God? That too meant Joel 2 is now happening. But Peter has so much more to say, not, not really about prophecy or tongues so much, but about something more important. Notice his next words in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Understanding Pentecost depends on understanding the person and work of Jesus. The words God spoke through Joel so long ago would wait until they were fully understood when Jesus came. 
And then the words of God that would be spoken through God's apostles, through his apostle Peter, those words would explain it all to us. Notice, Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, both of them pointing to Jesus. Verses 22 through 6 start building then in Peter's sermon towards a very dramatic conclusion. As if Peter is a lawyer and he begins to, to lay out his evidence to support his case. So he begins his case with Jesus' life in verse 22. Jesus, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Then on to Jesus' death by crucifixion. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And finally, Jesus' resurrection in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And to to further prove or, or point to the evidence of Christ's Resurrection, Peter points out that David once wrote in Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11, you see that in verse 27 especially, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or death, or you'll, or, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. You realize that if, if these words, and this is what Peter is saying, if, if these words were about David when he wrote them, they wouldn't be true. David died. David was buried. He saw corruption. His body decayed. But they weren't about David when David wrote them down and prophesied them. They were prophetic words about Jesus. Jesus was not abandoned to death. Jesus' body did not have time to start decaying in the grave before Jesus was resurrected by God. David told it ahead of time. And the apostles saw it. After he was raised. Old Testament prophets. New Testament apostles. Pointing to Jesus. So Peter at this point in his sermon. Starts to make application to his listeners. Jesus after being raised. Ascended as we saw last week. And he is now exalted by God. Sitting in a position of authority in the heavens. Ruling something else. That David had prophesied that Peter mentions in Psalm 110 verse 1. Quoted in verses 34 and 35. So the driving question maybe that started Peter answering was, what does Pentecost mean? He finally sums it up in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He, meaning Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Holy Spirit is now on earth because Jesus is now in heaven. One of Jesus' first acts of ascended Lord was to ask for the promise from the Father. That the Father would deliver the Spirit to Jesus so that Jesus could could deliver the Spirit to his people on earth. But that's not where Peter's sermon ends, is it? Peter's not quite done. The final words of his sermon, and I think the main point are yet to come. 
There are so many things to see in Peter's sermon. Just start with Peter's boldness and how remarkable that is. Considering that just over a month before, when Jesus stood trial before his accusers, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. Now he's standing in front of Jesus' murderers and putting them on trial. Isn't this evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead and that Peter did in fact see him risen? Isn't this evidence that, that the Spirit gave power to the apostles as he promised in Acts 1.8? What other explanation can you give for why a guy like Peter would forget his own life to tell about someone he had denied wholeheartedly just a few days before? Other important things worth noticing, like one of the clearest verses that supports the idea that God is sovereign and he holds man responsible for his actions. In verse 23. The mercy of God to ordain and plan for his son to die and the righteous justice of God to hold mankind responsible for that murderous act. We could spend days thinking about that. We could spend time thinking about how Peter and the apostles understood themselves to be living in a unique time and a special time of prophetic fulfillment and how that's important to think about how much or how little we should expect of what we see in Acts to be replicated and done in terms of signs and wonders in our church today. Books and books and books and books have been written on that question. We could think about how prophecy in the Old Testament works and how David could on the one hand use words like I and me and at the same time understand that he was not talking about himself, but he was talking for the one who was going to come, Jesus. We could notice how Joel 2 speaks of Yahweh, the Lord, and Peter applies that to Jesus, the Son of God. So much more, so many good things to think about and seek answers to. But if we focused on all those things in the sermon this morning and did not reach verse 36, we would miss the whole point of Pentecost. Peter lays out all the evidence. Joel's prophecy matching up with the Spirit's outpouring. Jesus' divinity and authority confirmed by his life of wonders and miracles. It's prophecy and the Spirit's coming serving to confirm that Christ is resurrected and ascended. And then Peter's conclusion in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In Peter's statement, there's majestic truth. Jesus is Lord. He is ruler. He is sitting in authority and power on the throne of the universe. He indeed was who he said he was. He is the promised Savior and Messiah, promised in the Old Testament. The one who would come And set men free from slavery and from bondage. 
But in Peter's statement, there is a massive problem. And it's a problem in explaining that requires some backstory. God created mankind to live with him, to be in a relationship with him, to enjoy fellowship with him. Adam and Eve had all the benefits of life with God. And the main sole reason why that didn't continue is because that wasn't the kind of life with God they wanted. They rejected his authority in their life and attempted to establish their own authority over their own life. And Paul is clear in his writing that with them, we all participated in the same rejection. So sin happened when Adam and Eve rejected God and us with them. But then, just after that in the book of Genesis, God provides a promise that he'll send someone that will take care of that sin. A Messiah, someone promised that would come down the line, who would, who would make that right again, who would restore the ability for humanity to live with God in a unified relationship with him. Something that sin had totally messed up. What Peter is saying is that God's solution came and we killed him. That's a problem. It's not really a problem for God. As if that was his plan and we came over his plan and messed it up. No, Acts 2, Peter says, that was God's plan all along. It's not really a problem for Jesus, as if he really wanted us to accept him, but we had rejected him anyway. And so now Jesus is dead, killed as a lunatic or a liar, as C.S. Lewis says. No, Jesus rose from the grave. He is risen, and he is God. He is ruling, and he has all authority. Our murdering him was not a problem for him. problem is that you and me didn't have to be there at this trial of Jesus yelling crucify him with everyone else to be guilty of rejecting his lordship the problem for you and me is that we have rejected his lordship in our weeks this week we have rejected him when we chose the sin we wanted over obedience to Christ's lordship We didn't have to personally drive the nails in his feet and in his hands to participate in an attempt on the life of the Son of God. No, every idol we have, every time we prioritize anything over God, any time we love something more than God, those are our own personal attempts to pull Jesus off the throne. And for us to nail him to the cross in hopes that that would make him die forever. You and I participated in the execution of the one who was sent to save. This is a problem, Jesus as Lord and Christ, because we're sinners. 
We've rejected God's solution for our sin. And it's a problem because that all deserves judgment by God. In Luke 20, Jesus told a parable that those in the crowd at Pentecost may have even heard, may have even remembered. It was a parable that goes like this. Jesus is speaking. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to a tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and they cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants. And give the vineyard to others. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Our rejection of Jesus means we participated in his execution. Our participation in his execution and in every other sin against God's lordship in our life means God will punish us. So you can see that as the mounting evidence that reaches the conclusion in Peter's sermon reaches its climax, you see how the realization of what they've done hits Peter's listeners instantly. And in verse 37, we see evidence of the Spirit acting in them to bring them conviction that cuts to their very heart. They ask the question you should ask this morning, if you find that the Spirit is working in you to convict you of your sin, what should we do? What should we do? Notice that the Spirit leads men to begin considering obedience to truth. And you know the Holy Spirit is leading someone to know Christ when they begin to really know the gravity of their sin against God. Peter answers in verses 38 through 40. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom our Lord our God calls to himself. I think this is the point of deepest meditation in Acts 2 that we could go on and on in for the rest of today. And I'd encourage you to do it. The very thing that humanity determined they would not have was the very thing that their lives depended on. And in God's plan... He meant for the suffering, crucified Messiah to be the hope for those who crucified him. 
The hope to be saved from the punishment of God is found in the Son of God who was punished for our salvation. We crucified Him. Yet through the crucifixion, He forgives us. We took His life. And yet through willingly giving up His life, He knew that was the way to provide us life with Him. This phrase that Peter uses, in the name of Jesus Christ, verse 38, just stands for all who Jesus is. His being, Himself, His character, what He's done. So salvation from Him comes from fully trusting in Him and trusting in what He has done. That's what we mean when we talk about faith. And, and how do we lay our trust in this Jesus? We do it by acknowledging what is true about Him. That He is Lord. That He is Savior. We do it by acknowledging that our sins need saving. And the only way they can be saved is through Christ's death for us on the cross. We turn from sin, wanting no more a part of it. And wanting everything to do with Jesus. We repent of the very sins that, sought, that caused us to reject Him and rebel against Him. And as a, as a sign that that has happened in our life, we go forward, we go public, and we participate in baptism. An action that every believer should do as a way to show that they've been united with Christ in His death, united in His burial, united with Him in His resurrection. Repentance and faith, symbolized in baptism, are the evidence that Christ's salvation is His forgiveness of sins has been effective in you. And, as life goes on for us as Christians, there will be further evidence lived out day by day as we long to follow Him as Lord, recognizing that His ways for us are always best. See, these verses are laying out the process of of true conversion. The Spirit must be active. The Gospel is preached. Christ's death and resurrection means that one can have forgiveness of sins and the Spirit if they repent and believe and are baptized. When that Gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit brings understanding, which prompts conviction, which leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. In Jesus, which leads to the Holy Spirit living in you. Look at what the Trinity has done for us. The Father promised the Spirit to the Son. The Son gives the Spirit to His people. So the Trinity, at some point, agreed to open up the benefit of themselves. The fellowship of God within the three persons of the Trinity decided they would extend that benefit to people like us. Amazing. And Peter's words in verse 39, which form a kind of bookend with verse 21, show that the only qualification required is that the Lord calls you and that you call out to the Lord. This promise is for anyone. Not just for Jews who were there at Pentecost, but for Gentiles. 
those whom the Old Testament calls far off, which is the language that Peter is using there. It's for you. It's for me. In Romans 10, verse 12 and 13, Paul quotes Acts 2, 21, to show that the promise is for anyone without ethnic or racial or language distinction. Paul writes in Romans 10, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the story of Acts bears this out as little Pentecosts start to happen in different areas of the world. Look at Acts 10, 34-47 later this week if you want to see what I'm referring to as the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, in verse 17, understands that we are living in the last days. That he was in the last days, and so Pentecost came, and so church, we too, are in the last days. If Peter understood his mission to be proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior, then so should we. If Peter understood that the power of the Spirit meant him preaching the message boldly with power from the Spirit, then so can we. If Peter meant with his life in Jesus to preach the message clearly so men can understand the seriousness of their sin, so should we. We can proclaim it with hope, pointing to people that the hope for forgiveness of sins rests not on us, not on us convincing them, but hope rests in the resurrected, exalted King of kings. The one that death tried to hold, but found that to be an impossible task. What other application does Peter's sermon have for us? Jesus is Lord and Savior is the foundational confession of the believer's faith. In that confession is the power to change our lives. The sins and fights that divide our marriages and raise conflict after conflict... Jesus, the Savior, died to forgive those sins and those conflicts. Confess Jesus as Savior by forgiving one another in our marriages. The anxieties and frustrations of unmet expectations at work or at home. Jesus, the Lord, reigns over our lives. And he orders it. So how do we confess him as Lord? We trust him with our cares. And our concerns. Just a couple ways Jesus as Lord and Savior impacts our life practically. I'd encourage you, maybe at lunch today, to think about other implications that confession has practically in our lives as believers. That's the end of Peter's sermon and our second point. Finally, third point, verses 41 through 47, the church grows. Let's read that together. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. One of the clearest examples in Acts of how to share the gospel is immediately followed by one of the clearest examples of how to live as a church. We don't want to remove these verses from their context, though, as if we set up a to-do list for us that we now go out to live out, just from verses 41 through 47. No, this is the end of the cycle. In order for the church to enjoy this kind of fellowship, other things have to happen first. The Spirit of God has to come. The gospel has to be preached. The Spirit must lead us into repentance and belief in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. People inside the church must be genuinely converted so that the Spirit lives in them and among them. See what a difference the Spirit makes. In Acts chapter 1, this was a group of 120 people huddled in a room not knowing what to do but to pray. Now in Acts 2, this is a group of 3,120 boldly declaring their faith through baptism and giving their lives to serve God and serve one another. This is better than Eden was. Because the Spirit is residing in His people. These people who had seen amazing manifestations of the Spirit's power notice where they go to first. They go to God's Word. They go to the teaching of the apostles. The Word came to them. The Word changed them. And they long for the Word to keep on changing them. So let's put ourselves around God's Word as a church. Let's do it with each other. Let's continue it in our small groups. Let's start one-on-one relationships with one another where we come together. And the first thing we do is say, All right, let's open our Bibles and see what it has to say. If you're a single here today, I'd invite you to attend the seminar that's happening at the Parks' house tonight at 6.30, where you will think together about God's teaching on attraction. That's how we do this. The plan of God at Pentecost was to reveal that he had a plan to save people from all the nations. And for each of those people that he saved to be inseparably linked To the rest of God's people. We don't have any idea what any of these 3,000 people did for a job. We don't know their names. We don't know their kids' names. But we know what their lives look like together as a church. Don't we? God's intention is for all his individual people to have their lives intertwined with others in a gospel-believing, gospel-proclaiming church. So what does a spirit look like? What does a church look like that's full of people that have believed and been baptized and are full of the spirit? It's a united church. A church that fights racism is a church that believes in Jesus. A church that confesses hatefulness to one another and forgives that hatefulness is a church that believes in Jesus. It will be a generous church. A church that gives financially to meet the needs of others. It will be a learning church. 
A church that longs to hear God's word, read God's word, study God's word. It will be a gathering church. People who long to be with the household of God. People who look forward to meeting every week and throughout the week to share lives with one another. It will be a serving church. Willing to set aside individual plans and priorities for the benefit of the body. It will be a thankful church that reflects together on how good God has been to create a family out of a bunch of rebels. It will be a loving church, a people who live in peace with each other, and a church that has good standing with those outside, a people who tell others of Jesus and encourage others to repent and believe. It will be a worshiping church, attributing every aspect of our growth To God's work in us. And it must be a spirit-filled church. Because without the spirit, none of the rest would ever happen. So let's start fulfilling this vision for God's church by praying that his spirit would be filling us to live as he calls us to live. The cycle of God's amazing saving work started long ago. But it continues today. The Spirit is poured out on us. People outside see and hear our witness as we proclaim the gospel. Lives are changed by the grace and power of God and we get to witness that. And God gives spiritual growth. And sometimes he gives numerical growth. We only pray he will enable us to stay faithful to his mission. To the praise and glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we sang earlier, we long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may with one heart and one voice and one soul Sing of your redeeming grace. Spread your gospel through us. Fill your church with your spirit. Bring the lost to repentance and belief. And grow your church in a way that magnifies and glorifies you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.